Now let's uh, turn to the New Testament for our text, the letter to the Ephesians. And chapter 5, page 1346 in the Church Bible, 1346, Ephesians chapter 5. And uh, reading at verse 17. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation or scattering, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart or literally plucking the strings of your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 19, we are to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and plucking the strings of our hearts to the Lord. Now we're returning to this text that we were looking at just a couple of weeks ago. And um, a couple of weeks ago we looked at the last part of the verse which told us to pluck the strings of our hearts to the Lord. This time I want us to focus on uh, speaking to each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Just like last time, I don't think we'll get to the precise words of our text of tonight. I really want to lay the groundwork for understanding what these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs are. We, we've broken off our studies in 1 Corinthians and in the book of Daniel. The reason we've done that for a couple of weeks is just to answer uh, two of the most common questions asked by people who visit the church. The first of these questions is, why are there no musical instruments in our worship? The second is, why don't we sing any other songs except the Psalms? I think it's useful to point out that these questions are actually always asked by people who, who are Christians, or at least professing Christians. Uh, people who are not churchgoers don't ask these questions because they don't particularly feel it's unusual. It's people who are familiar with church who ask why we don't really do these things. Last time uh, we looked at the role of musical instruments in worship. Why God appointed them? Why he gave David a commandment to make them, to use them? how they were played by the Levites and only played in the temple and never played in the synagogue. And once we understood these things, we understood why they have no continuing role under the new covenant. Today I want to turn to the songs that we actually sing. Why is it that we sing psalms or why is it that we sing only the psalms? I'm conscious that this text is a text that's used by people to say that we should sing something else. Tonight we'll see that that's not so. 
but nonetheless, Aquinas said that we sing ordinary psalms. Before I begin, I want to say what I said at the beginning last time, and it's to do with the burden of proof. Uh, if if you are perhaps sitting here of the mind that we should be singing other things, you you may feel that I have the burden of proof to show why we shouldn't be singing something else. And it's always the case when you're defending a minority position that you tend to feel a burden of proof. But really the position that we have is only a minority position right now, at this particular moment. It's easy to forget sometimes that the New Covenant Church is 2,000 years old. So you can't really measure what's orthodox or conservative in it by just taking a snapshot at any particular time. If you go back only 200 years, and in the grand scheme of things, that's a short space of time, if you go back only 200 years, you'll find all the Reformed churches from Europe to America singing only the Psalms. That's quite significant, is it not? If you take nearly the first 400 years of the church's existence, too, you'll only find that they are either singing or chanting psalms. You won't find them singing hymns. Now, even the most ardent advocate of hymn singing uh, is struggling to find a reason why we don't find hymns being sung in the church in the first 400 years. Hymns are what you would call an enduring art form. All songs are. And you would expect the songs in the first 400 years to have lasted. After all, the writings of the Church Fathers have lasted. There's, a, there's heaps of them. But there are no songs. In fact, what you do find is Church Councils warning against using false songs because it was being done by heretics who were introducing false ideas through the songs that they were singing. But you have a council like the Council of Laodicea in 350 prohibiting the use of man-made songs in worship. That was confirmed by one of the seven great ancient councils of the church, the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Now that's one of the seven ancient councils that the Protestant churches recognized as being valid. The Reformed churches streaming from Calvin have always given place to the first seven ecumenical councils. They decreed that only the songs of scripture were to be sung in worship. So that gives you the idea. It's, it's from 350 onwards that other songs are appearing. They are appearing at the hands of heretics and the church is quite keen to keep them out. Now, the only reason I mentioned what, what was the case 200 years ago and what was the case in the first 400 years ago, first 400 years of the church, the only reason I mentioned that is just to remind you where the burden of proof really actually lies. It lies on you. It lies on you to justify why these additional songs have been brought into the worship of Christ's church. Now, you may want to point to this text immediately and say, well, there's our justification. But what happens if it's not? In any case, the burden of proof does lie with you. But it doesn't matter. I'm quite happy uh, to advocate what I consider to be the biblical position. 
It is a minority position, right enough, and sometimes in any snapshot of history you look around and things are done a certain way, so you feel a bit odd if you're not doing it that way. We all feel that. You may feel it actually with other things too. You do feel odd. But the fact is that the reason we sing this way um, has everything to do with what God's Word says. It's nothing to do with being conservative with a small c or being traditional. Um, new songs are being written all the time. You know that as well as I do. And the way in which they're being played is changing all the time. And since the mid-20th century, these songs and the way they're performed have been brought into the church and into the main assemblies of worship. There's no signs of that slowing down. Of course, there is a constituency of people that don't like it, but they don't like it on the basis of taste, usually, or something like tradition. There are people who would say, well, the old was better, the old songs were better, and the way in which they were performed was better. Now, you could make a good case for that, but I think the fact is that some of the new songs are better than some of the old ones. Um, there's no point in thinking the old is always better. In fact, when people quote that from the Bible, they forget that Christ was rebuking that attitude. He was rebuking the Pharisees for saying that the old was always better. The fact of the matter is that sometimes new songs are better. But so what? Does that mean that they should be sung in worship? We have very sound biblical reasons for only using the Bible's songbook or the book of Psalms for singing. Our sister church in America, the RPCNA, calls its Psalter the book of Psalms for singing. It's interesting that they do that because it is a reminder to us that that's what the book's there for. Most churches don't sing Psalms at all. Some churches give them a token place, others don't sing them at all. So the Psalms, for most people, become poems to read. Whereas God actually gave them as songs to be sung, the book of Psalms for singing. So where do we begin? Well, let's begin where we began last time, by making sure we understand what worship actually is. For many people, worship is a feeling primarily. But in the Bible, worship is not a feeling or a state. It's an act, it's a thing. It's a thing to be done, or a series of things to be done. They are things which you do when you enter into the presence of God. You do that by calling on his name. I began this service or this liturgy this morning by calling on the name of the Lord. That means that we summon his presence into the assembly. It means that we bring ourselves formally into the presence of our covenant Lord and King. Let us worship God. So from that point onwards, what we have is a series of liturgical acts. Prayer, preaching, singing, benediction, a series of liturgical acts that we are offering to God as worship. 
And of course we offer them to God on the understanding that he actually wants them and that he has specified the things that are to be done in his presence. That's quite critical. And I admit, if you don't accept that, then we're not going to agree on anything to do with worship. If you think that you can yourself decide what is acceptable or not acceptable for God in worship, there is no common ground between us and we just can't go any further. But I would honestly challenge you to search the scriptures and see whether or not so. From the very moment man fell in the Garden of Eden, you'll find a problem with worship. Cain came into God's presence, bringing an offering that to him was expensive, costly, and well worth receiving. But God did not respect the offering of Cain. He did respect the offering of Abel. The only reason for that didn't lie in the intrinsic merit of what was offered, but the fact that one gave God what he wanted and the other did not. The kings of the ancient Near East were very specific in terms of their tribute. If they were conquering kings, they would lay the terms of tribute on the nations. This is what we give. Now, the king of the conquered nation wasn't at liberty to say, well, you asked for gold coins stamped in your image, but here are some diamonds which we think are wonderful. Not an option. It's not an option. And when we have sinned and fallen out of God's favor, and when we have been excluded from the Garden of Eden, excluded from paradise and from the presence of God, excluded with a flaming sword of justice, it is God's prerogative to say how we get back in, on what terms, and what it is that we offer when we come back in. It's God's prerogative. Cain found that out. Aaron's sons found that out when they just changed the offering a bit, going into the tabernacle, and so on. You have a history of it through the Old Testament. So the key to worship is that we bring our covenantal tribute, which God has required, and we bring it in his own presence. We should agree on that, what he wants, and when and how he wants it. Now under the new covenant, our worship as Christians is pretty much identical to the worship of believers in the old covenant. I had gone before you last time an important distinction between the regular weekly worship of the Lord's people on their sabbatic day of rest and the occasional worship in the temple. The occasional temple worship was full of music, clothes and incense and sacrifice and all kinds of things, altars and lampstands. But the worship of the town and the village and the city, week by week, was simple and plain, with prayer, with singing, and exposition of the word. In the New Testament, these are the things which continue. Our own confession of faith specifies what the elements of worship are. In other words, by elements we mean the series of things that are to be done in worship. Proclamation of the word is something we offer to God. Prayer is something we offer to God in worship. Scripture reading, not the reading of any other book, 
But the reading of scripture is something that we offer to God. The singing of psalms, the confession says, is something that we are to offer to God in worship. We offer to him too the sacraments according to New Testament precedent. When the church is assembled, they offer sacraments and occasionally vows and fastings. If we have a baptism, vows are taken. If an elder is being ordained into office, vows are taken. We stand up, it is an act of worship. When the elder pledges himself, he pledges himself before God. We all participate in the matter. These things are acts of worship. Now, when the confession gives that list, it's not a specimen list. It's not a list to which we can add. It's an exhaustive or a comprehensive list. You can't decide to add, let's say, a two-minute period where incense is offered. Or neither can you uh, clothe me in vestments. The collar is not a vestment, by the way. It never was. It's not a, please, it's not a dog collar either, which is worn by dogs. It is simply a badge of office. That's all. It's not a vestment. A vestment, as uh, Episcopalian churches wear them, are pieces of clothes that symbolize particular things. But we're not at liberty to introduce vestments. We're not at liberty to introduce a sacrifice or self-flagellation, for example. Not at liberty to introduce that either. In other words, what God wants is laid down in the New Testament. And of course our contention is that we are bound in singing to sing the songs that God actually gave. Now sometimes when we argue like this it's a bit difficult to follow it and maybe you're familiar with some of it. Maybe you just need to come at it a different way. So let's come at it a different way. Suppose for example you were coming to church this morning and inside your bulletin there was a little insert with a song that I had written last night. And I wanted you to sing that song. And I wanted you to sing it to a tune that maybe you didn't find very comfortable on the sound, like uh, Ten Green Bottles or something like that. But I said, well, I want you to sing. I believe that this is a good song. I felt quite moved when I wrote it. And I want you to sing it like this. Now, would that be okay with you? If so, why would it be okay to sing my song today? And if it's not okay, why is it not okay? Are there some things that you would like to know before you sang it? For example, would you like to know whether, whether or not I was a really gifted poet or lyricist? Would you like to know that? Does it particularly matter? Would you like to know if I was inspired by the Holy Spirit when I wrote it? Would you like to know if the song was 100% correct? Maybe there are more general questions. These lead to more general questions. Who should write the worship songs of the church? Who should do it? Who's qualified? Can an unbeliever write one? Supposing that the words are okay, is it okay if an unbeliever writes a song? Who needs to approve the song? Session? Presbytery? Assembly? Worship leader? Does a song sung in worship have to mention God? Does it have to mention Jesus? 
The most common versions of Amazing Grace don't mention God or Jesus, incidentally. Do these songs need to address God directly? Or is it okay just to speak about God? Can you answer these questions? Do you think it's important to answer these questions? You may say, well, I'm doing the sermon and I'm doing the prayer, so why can't I write the song? Well, okay. Although it's not that simple. For example, when I am reading to you, as part of what God commanded that there be a reading, you know fine well that I'm not going to read a book that I wrote last week, or last month, or last year. You know I'm going to read the scriptures and the scriptures alone, because they are inspired, right? In the same way, when God commanded prayer to be offered, he commanded prayer to be offered for particular situations, for requests to be made for our kings, for all who are in authority. These things change. And when he commanded songs to be sung, what songs did he command to be sung? The fact that I pray contextually doesn't mean that God has said, well, sing different songs in different cultures and different nations. Did he? This is the question. Did he? Did he give us special songs to sing? Let's go back to that incident that we read. You don't need to turn to it as such, but let me just take you back in your memories to the second passage of scripture that we read on Hezekiah's Reformation, around about 720 BC. Hezekiah's father had corrupted worship. Not every bad king corrupted worship, but some of them did. And of course, what happened to his father Ahaz is what happens to a lot of people. They go somewhere and they see something and they think, that's a good idea. It's as simple as that. That's what happened. He went to meet his overlord, which shouldn't have become his overlord anyway. And what's he doing? Making treaties with Assyria. What are we doing? Making treaties with some of the people we make treaties with. In any case, he makes a treaty with Assyria. He meets the king in Damascus and he sees a stone altar which they use in their worship. And he's so impressed with it that he gets the plans and he sends the plans back to Jerusalem and asks the priests to organize the building of a replica altar. And when he comes back, he's really impressed with this replica altar, the altar of Damascus. And then he gives instructions for this altar to become the main altar in the temple. He commands that all the regular offerings are offered on this altar. Now the bronze altar that God had commanded to be used for these offerings, interestingly, he didn't get rid of. What he did was he shunted it to the side. And he decided that he would use it himself for certain occasions. It's interesting again that he doesn't get rid of it. Maybe there's an element of fear in it. Maybe his conscience is working somewhere saying, well, God actually commanded this at some point. So he keeps it there. <laughs> but the altar, he calls the great altar. This is one that was really impressive. It's the kind of thing that happens very often when people discover that and from a psalm singing church they'll say, well, we always sing one psalm. You say, well, what about the other three singings? 
as though keeping one psalm was really good. Keeping this altar was really good. But of course there's a problem with it. God didn't ask for it. I don't know, maybe objectively it could have looked a lot nicer. That's not the point. Never is the point. It might have been a spectacular altar. That's not the point. I mean, some people say, well, this sounds better than that, you know. I don't think, for example, that it's necessary to prove our worship to say that it always sounds better than something else. I, I personally happen to think it does. I think the organ, which is a majestic instrument, and a lovely instrument, I think it's very poor at leading people in singing. That's just my opinion on the matter. But sometimes something may sound better, but that's not. It's not what it's all about always, is it? I mean, take the Lord's Supper. Is the Lord's Supper the most spectacular meal that you've ever seen? Is it the most elaborate feast that you've ever seen? Have you never seen some a table more wonderfully spread than the Lord's Supper? Of course you have. But the point is that God wants bread and wine, nothing else. That's always the point. The point is always what does God want? And interestingly, when Hezekiah, and it is interesting how you have these good men uh, being brought up by, in the house of an evil parent, and sometimes it works the other way around. It's, a, it's an astonishing thing. It's an encouraging thing, too. Sometimes in a home that seems to be badly led, nonetheless the Lord can raise someone in such a home. But when Hezekiah reformed the temple, he reformed the furniture, opened the altar of Damascus, Back then went the bronze altar. You'll notice that he purged out other instruments, the instruments that David had appointed, according to the commandment of Nathan and Gad the seer, they were reintroduced, and critically, the psalms that were written by David and by Asaph the prophet. Notice he reforms the songs as well as the instruments. He commanded the priests and the Levites to sing the words of David and of Asaph the prophet. Now what I want to bring before you here, in a way it's fairly obvious, but it's easy to overlook, and that's just the fact that these songs by now are 300 years old. So it's the equivalent today of songs that were written about 1700 or so. Now, very often people who call themselves reformers will gather the talents of people and bring new things in. He could have done that. He, he could have found plenty of composers and singers in Judah. I mean, like every country and every era, there's plenty of them, plenty of poets, plenty of singers, plenty of musicians. After all, his father must have done something like that. People must have brought in other instruments and they brought in other songs. Or he could have just brought in other instruments and other songs. But he didn't. He perched out. Why did he perch out? Why did he go back to the songs of David and Esau? The answer is simple. Once you understand the, once you understand the answer, you understand the whole case for exclusive sanity, actually. The answer that he went back to these songs was because they were the songs that God had given these prophets to write. It's as simple as that. God hadn't given new songs for 300 years. So, we sing the songs that he gave. 
We don't make one up. What was the last word God spoke? Let's sing that. Because what we want to sing, what we ought to sing, and what we must sing are God's words. God's words on God's instruments. That is the thrust of Hezekiah's Reformation worship. We sing God's songs, even if they're 300 years old, and we sing them on God's instruments, as made by David and given to the Levites. And that has always been the case. I cannot see and I have not come across any other example of anything else in the scriptures or in history. Right up to the days of Christ, the people of God sang the songs that the prophets had written. Psalm 45, which we sang, gives us an insight into David receiving one of these songs. The power of the Holy Spirit seizing him, and he suddenly sees the Son of God. He sees him in his resurrected glory, in his majesty, in his resurrected fragrance with arrows, myrrh, and casting. And the words just come out of his mouth as though they had been carefully constructed by a skillful scribe. And it was given to the church. That's for worship. Why? Because God gave it. God gave it to his son. Not every song that was inspired was to be used in worship. Moses wrote three songs, as far as we know. One of them is recorded in the book of Exodus, one of them is recorded in the book of Deuteronomy, the other one is the oldest psalm in the psalm book, Psalm 90. That one was to be sung in God's worship. Solomon wrote a thousand and five songs. Only two of these are in the book of Psalms, Psalm 127 and Psalm 72, the glory of the Messianic kingdom. Hezekiah wrote a song, which was to be sung in the temple indeed, as did Habakkuk, a song which was to be sung and played by the Levites on string instruments in the temple indeed. But when Hezekiah came, sorry, when um, Ezra gathered the Psalms into the songbook of the church, not all these were included. He was guided to include the 150 Psalms which we have in the Psalter. The single most important criterion for inclusion in that sound book was written by prophet, inspired by the Holy Spirit to give verbatim the Word of God. That's the single most important criterion. How the Psalms are arranged is an interesting thing. Without a doubt, at their centre is the covenant king. All the spokes come from there at the centre. Christ is at the centre of the book of Psalms, there is no doubt about that. But every writer is a prophet. Jeduthun, who wrote Psalms, is called a seer. Asaph, who wrote Psalms, is called a seer. David, who wrote Psalms, is a prophet. Moses, who wrote Psalms, is a prophet. The sons of Korah were prophets. Do you see the point? Do you see the principle? I'm, I'm not at liberty to write a song and bring it in here because I am not a prophet. I am a minister. I explain the words of the prophets 
My words are not infallible, but the word from which I preach is infallible. It is inevitable. And the words that God has given us to sing are precisely those words. Ezra closed the psalm book, and for 400 years before Christ, no other song was given. But the synagogues still sang the psalms. They didn't make up their own. All that is crucial. Why didn't the apostles reopen the psalm book? Well, I think there's a very simple reason for that. Because the psalms already said everything that needed to be said. Or the psalms said everything already that God wanted them to say. Let me take an example, and I'm essentially closing with this, although it will take a little while. Um, we sang the psalm a while back, Psalm 118. We often sing it. The book of the Acts in chapter 4 tells us that it is messianic, it's Christ-centered. The psalm builds up in a kind of crescendo. It reaches a climax from verse 15 onwards where there's a note of triumph because the day of the Lord has arrived. God's arm is powerfully raised and it brings salvation and joy to God's people. The result is that they say, set open the gates of righteousness. Let's enter into them. Why? Because of a man who claims to be the Messiah. But shockingly, when the builders who are building God's church examine his claims to messiahship and examine his claims to be the foundation stone of God's temple, they reject him. But the psalm goes on to say that the stone which the builders rejected has become the head corner stone. And the result is that the uh, worshipping assembly welcomes the Messiah and prays for the growth of his kingdom. Now, when Christ rides into Jerusalem on a donkey on his last visit, they sing the psalm as he's entered in the city. Obviously, at least some of the people there are recognizing the identity of this man. The psalm has been fulfilled. We from the Lord's house bless you. Come and enter. Let your kingdom grow and let it flourish. But of course, there's a spanner in the works. Because the builders who are building the temple don't recognize him and they crucify him. But according to the New Testament, that's only put a temporary delay on matters. Because as Jesus says in Matthew, the last part of the psalm will still be fulfilled. When Jesus returns a second time, a Jerusalem will welcome him. The Jewish people will welcome him. We, if we're spared and well, will welcome him. And the psalm will be fulfilled. Right. Okay. Now Christ sings this psalm when he is holding the last Passover with the disciples. You'll remember on that occasion he does something momentous at the meal. He, he takes a couple of elements on the Passover table. He takes the bread and he takes them to the wine and he converts them into a new ordinance. 
this is my body broken for you. And he takes the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So often as you do this, you do this in remembrance of me. And in doing that, he takes the old covenant meal and he transforms it into the new Lord's Supper. Just of the word of his old command. And when they leave that room, we're told that they hymned, they sang. Everyone, even opponents of exclusive sanity, will admit that what Christ and the disciples sang that night was Psalm 118. In fact, Psalm 130 to 118, the great Hallel, which was always sung at the, at the Passover meal. They hymned it, because that's the, that's the Greek word for singing. Praise to God, they hymned Psalm 118. Now the big question is this, you may not think it's a big question, it's a really big question. Why didn't Christ write a new song and give it there and then? If he transformed the old meal into the new one, why not give a new song? There's a very simple answer to that. The song originally given was absolutely sufficient. In fact, I think you could go so far as to say that it's only now it is really sufficient. In other words, once the fulfillment comes, once Christ does the work and once the thing happens, the sun illuminates. The sun makes sense. In other words, I must admit that my difficulty with the whole question is the opposite to other people's difficulty. My difficulty is trying to figure out how they sang these songs intelligently in the Old Testament. That's my problem. Example, when you sing Psalm 110, the Lord did say unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand. How do you sing that intelligently under the old covenant? But, ah, I understand under the new. The Father says to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make it enemies my footstool. Do you see the point? These old covenant songs are written in such a distinctive way that they are meant to encompass the whole church in all ages. All that is required to sing them properly, thoroughly, with understanding, is for the new covenant light to be switched on, which is precisely what happened with the death and resurrection of Jesus and the sending of the Holy Spirit. We can sing the Psalms with conviction, with intelligence, and we need nothing else. It's all there. Psalm 22, they pierced my hands and feet. In days before the crucifixions, what sense do you make of that? Oh, well, we understand it now. So why ditch the psalm then? Why replace it with our own musings on the cross when we have our, own, our Lord's own description of his own feelings and his pain and his circumstances? They pierced my hands and my feet. Why? Why should I cross that out to bring something else in? Or even relegate it like the bronze altar? Why? The Psalms are special. Because they are full of Christ. They are full of Christ. I said a while ago I would close with this, and I am closing with this. Um, people speak of Messianic Psalms. Some Psalms in the Bible speak of Christ. Well, 
I find that difficult because when you ask people what these are, they say, well, there's Psalm 2 and there's Psalm 22, and they'll say there's uh, Psalm 40 and Psalm 72. I'm tempted to respond by saying, really? Is that the only Psalms in which you find Christ? I drew up this list quite hurriedly, actually, for an article a few years back, and I never expanded on it, but let me just give it to you as I wrote it. Psalm 2 brings before us the resurrection, the ascension, the coronation and dominion of Jesus Christ. His exaltation to world ruler is in Psalm 8. His struggle and pain in Gethsemane is delineated in Psalm 16. His distress on the cross in Psalm 20. His deliverance out of it and his glorification in heaven is in Psalm 21. His distress and deliverance in his own feelings and words are in Psalm 22. His leading of his people as the shepherd king in Psalm 23, his ascension to glory in Psalm 24, his incarnation, his prophetic and priestly roles in Psalm 40, his betrayal by Judas in Psalm 41, his kingdom and his kingship in Psalm 45, his ascension in Psalm 68, his universal messianic kingdom in Psalm 72, his intercession for his people in Psalm 80, his preservation from evil in this world in Psalm 90. One, his coming judgment and rule in Psalms 96 and 98, his lordship in Psalm 102, his priestly kingship, unique to him, in Psalm 110, his resurrection and headship of the church in Psalms 118, 132, and 133. And I said at the time that that list is not exhaustive. And you say to me that Christ is not really in the Psalms? And you say to me that he's not clear enough in Psalms. Not clear enough in the Psalms? When he is the speaker in most of them? When he is described in his own experience in most of them? Not clear enough? Astonishing. When God has given us a songbook, he has given us a songbook that is prophetic, inspired, infallible, inerrant. And it's not my little composition from last night, but he wants to be sung. It's these, but he wants to be sung. What about the songs and the hymns and the spiritual songs? Well, we'll see what that means tonight. Let us pray. Uh, Lord, we bless you for the words that you have spoken. And they transcend all other words. And we pray to live by the words of prophecy and to have them in our mouth. And we are thankful for the comprehensive nature of these songs that you gave, the themes that they include, which we so often neglect, and how they bring before us so vividly the story of the church under an old covenant and indeed under the new. How they bring before us the Christ in type and symbol but also in his feeling, in his pain, in his joy, and in his sorrow. So may we sing ourselves with joy in our hearts, rendering to you a worship that you most certainly have required. In Christ's name, Amen. Now let's uh, Sing in conclusion in Psalm 19 on page 224. 
Singing to the tune Moravia, just the last three stanzas of Psalm 19. Who can his errors understand? O cleanse thou me within from secret faults. Thy servant also keep from all presumptuous sin. That's sinning with defiance or sinning with a high hand. And do not suffer them to have dominion over me. Then righteous and innocent I from much sin shall be. And then there's this prayer. This is from someone who's concerned about what he says as well as what he thinks. The words which from my mouth proceed, the thoughts sent from my heart, accept, O Lord, for thou my strength and my redeemer art. These last three stanzas, let's stand and sing. Amen.